Bring it in. Read option back after an eventful weekend. Uh, if you're watching on the YouTube, uh, you'll notice I'm sunburnt as fuck. My face looks like a tomato. Uh, it was hot as all hell. The first really feels like summer, even though it's the weekend before Memorial Day weekend we had this week. Um, but did a whole bunch of fun stuff. And uh, no veto. Vito's on vacation this whole week. So it's just me and Scotty. But we had the PGA, which was electric. We had NBA playoffs, which were duds. And uh, some NFL news a little bit here and there. But getting ready for Memorial Day weekend. And Scotty's here with me for the uh, for the show today. So how you doing, buddy? I'm good, man. Especially after those two wins. How about them Warriors? How about them Warriors? And we're, we're going to get into a bunch of that uh, where, where I was wrong. Uh, will definitely be a segment when we when we get up there. But the Warriors look fantastic. Um, definitely just a better all-around team than Dallas right now. Um, fun weekend, though. Fun weekend of sports. The PGA was great. Tiger, just an absolute gutty performance, making the cut. Um, especially, you know, saw some people kind of shitting on all that. Like, oh, he withdrew after three days. I mean, that dude was limping around that course, but he did on Friday. And do you know what it would take for him to, to withdraw? Like, he had to be in serious pain. That dude is the epitome of all competitors. So well, don't give me that got, garbage. Not only that, like, what has he got to prove? Yeah. Like, at this point, Go what, get the healthy. Hell, what the hell does he have to prove? He's done and, everything you could ever ask somebody to do in a sport. He's one of the most famous athletes in the world. I think there's two reasons. I think, A, I think because I saw, him, but saw somebody make a similar point on Twitter. And it was like, he's just out here because he knows nothing else other than to compete. And like, I think there's some truth in that. Like, I think he's a natural born competitor when he gets on a golf course. I think the other big aspects of this went with the Tiger stuff, at least, is just that like the dude is a golf nerd to the fullest extent. Like he loves nothing more than golf and being able to compete at golf. But I also think after everything that happened, Obviously, the comeback in 2019, we started to see a different version of Tiger. But then after the accident last year, it feels like we've seen now even another step in that direction, which is just this uber appreciative Tiger Woods who is out there gutting it out for the fans as much as I think he's gutting it out for himself. I think he's doing it as, as a thank you, as a respect for the game. Um, and I also think with all the Saudi stuff and like no Phil being able to, you know, Phil not being able to be there and, and all this shit, too. I think it's important for him to respect the PGA and the tour and to, you know, give it a good name. So I thought it was awesome. Anytime you get watch Tiger Woods play golf, like and make the cut when like Scotty Scheffler didn't make the cut, when there are guys, yeah. multiple guys in the top 10 and the top 20 who didn't make DJ the cut. DJ didn't make the cut. Yeah. DJ didn't make and, and yet Tiger fucking Woods made the cut on one leg, you know, hitting stingers that were going, you know, half as far as Rory McIlroy's drives on Thursday and Friday. Um, and then ultimately, and we'll get into Saturday and Sunday. It was amazing. The whole thing was great. Uh, new koozie today for me. Uh, shout out to the bar I work at, Casual Pint, at Casual Pint Summer. Uh, hashtag Casual Pint Summer. Scotty's repping the, the Kritzman games. And you, you said you just grabbed the random one, but I think it's worth um, explaining to the listeners yeah. what the Kritzman games are. Because yeah, uh, my, what a, what my a time. Best, my best friend, Jake Kreitzman, uh, him and his lovely wife, Lauren, uh, used to uh this this one i believe is from 2019 yeah uh 2019 we used to host uh they used to host a beer olympics for uh everyone in the crew uh from college and then their their friends uh from home in pittsburgh so 
Uh, that was an annual summer event uh, up until COVID. <laughs> uh, dismantled it and, and pregnancies and all of that. But uh, no, no issue there. We'll get back to it when we get back to it. It's always going to be there, but it's a ton of fun. Uh, we, we, there's always a theme. And uh, just, just, yeah. Well, what a, I love about it too weekend. is like so many beer Olympics are like thrown together last minute. Like you come up with the idea with like your boys, like, oh, we're going, like what we did last year for Kenny's bachelor party. Like it was, a, we had a blast and we made the most out of it, but there was not a whole lot of like planning or getting jerseys or any of that kind of shit made. This is like a, you guys go all out. You all have a country, you all rep the colors. It's an all, it's a literally an all day thing. It's like full, it's like when you went, if you go full send, on a on a beer olympics that's like what the crutzmans do so shout out to jake and lauren we're all we're all happy for them right now uh just a wonderful couple um anything else from the weekend i mean the sun was it was so hot dude like i i had softball on saturday morning woke up like i drank a little bit on friday night i wasn't like hung over anything but i like to wear i have like athletic leggings that i wear underneath my shorts when i go and play softball because kind of protect your knees and whatnot um but they're a little bit thicker. And so without even thinking, like I threw them on and I knew when I was, I have long hair, it's really long right now. So it's, I like to wear the hair down and put on my baseball cap, right? Let the flow right, you know, just rage out behind me. And it was like the bottom of the second inning of the first game of our double header. And I was like almost passing out of heat stroke. And so I had to go and do the thing where I was like taking off the leggings without taking my shorts off because there was like no bathroom. There's nowhere for me to do it. So I'm like struggling. I'm like in the shade, like dying. I, uh, I had left my hair tie in the car. So one of the girls on the team, cause it's a co-ed league was like, I have an extra one. And I was like, yes, please. So I had that. So that immediately no hat on put sunscreen on my arms, but not on my face. Cause I was wearing a hat when I put it on and then was out in the sun there for like three hours. Then I get back and I'm like, my body's beaten down and I'm exhausted. And my roommate's like, oh, we're going to go to Georgetown and like go hang out and have a couple of beers at the waterfront. You know, one of my roommates is new to the area. So we we're like, yeah, sure. Why not? Let's do that. So we end up going there. And then I'm just sitting out in like 96 degree heat, just getting absolutely blasted by the sun. And it wasn't until about four or five hours um, had gone by of me being out in the sun that I realized like, oh, shit, like I did not put any sunscreen on. So I look like a tomato and my face hurts to touch. So that's kind of. <laughs> my body is like still in shambles i don't know if it's like hey you know i know i didn't have any symptoms from covid but like you know any post covid like let yourself rest i was like i just did not do that this weekend so uh <laughs> other than sitting and watching golf um at certain points that was about the most that i uh, that i did uh all right let's get into some of the pga championship stuff and then we'll get into basketball and whatnot later so justin thomas um Ties the record for the largest comeback in PGA championship history. I believe he was third biggest comeback in major championship history. He was down seven strokes going into Sunday and following this tournament all week long. And, and I'll just be honest with the listeners. We did about 30 minutes on the PGA championship on Friday's pod that we had to cut out because it was like a two, it would have been like a two and a half hour episode. And, and we know that, you know, we don't want to make you guys listen to us for two and a half hours. Uh, at that point, it feels like a hostage situation. So we didn't get a chance to put off, a, you know, our kind of early picks. You did say that your pick um, or a pick that you liked at least was Justin Thomas as a future after the first day on, on Thursday night when we were recording. But one of the things I'd said was I felt like the, the person who was going to win would be the person who just put together, you know, 
three or four like subpar rounds in a row. Nothing crazy. It didn't have to be like Bubba Watson shooting 63 on Friday. It was just going to be like you shot two under on Thursday. You shot one under on a Friday. You go even par on Saturday. And then you put together a good round on Sunday. And that's essentially what uh, Justin Thomas did. And he said as much after the round, you know, he was asked earlier in the week, like, is any lead safe at this course? And the way that it was playing with the weather changing and, and the wind changing and how the greens were laid out and the bunkers being impossible to navigate, that was ended up being so evident to the point where, you know, uh, Pereira, who was leading the tournament, uh, pretty much all of, he was back and forth with Zal Torres on Saturday, but then led it pretty much the whole time on Sunday. Double bogeys 18, drops himself out of the playoff. Zal Torres sinks a huge birdie putt on 18. Uh, and Justin Thomas, going from two over to, to five under, um, ends up being, or sorry, not two. I think it was one under going into the day, but still shooting four under on the day, puts himself in a chance to go win a playoff. And then he stripes the drive on 17 um, on the par four there to, uh, to birdie that. And then the three-hole playoff was great. So uh, just an awesome, awesome golf tournament um and the PGA championship I really feel like brings I feel like we have the it's my favorite non-masters right it, it's just it's always really really good golf the golf courses sometimes can be really easy to get but for the most part they make it challenging enough and the field's always amazing and and one of the things we said on Friday's pot or well, on Thursday night when we recorded it was that this felt like it was going to be a big name year I, I didn't feel like a, a guy like Pereira was going to win a tournament you know yeah, and I feel bad for for him because he did play, you know, lights out for, mm-hmm. for most of the tournament. And, and you know, credit to him. He's a great golfer. He proved that uh, in, in a tough field this week. And, you know, Sunday at a major, that's just, you know, <laughs> it's just what happens. And it's it's not necessarily the course, although that played a large part in it. Uh, it was it was one of those things on 18. It was just like, all you got to do is put it on the fairway, bud. You got a one-stroke lead. Um and uh and yeah, you know, how he doesn't to, go three wood there why he why he played driver on 18 i i don't know i would have i would have left swing. it in the bag yeah would have left it in the bag entirely i mean he could have um, hit iron off the tee and still probably all he had to yep. do was par and, and he wins and then if you bogey it at least you're still in the playoff but you have to give yourself a chance 100 percent, 100 percent agree and uh and that's what but sung brought that my wife brought that up too uh, when we were watching so why don't you just do do something to, to hit it straight and get it onto the, to the, to the fairway. I was like, that is an excellent question. I don't know why. Um, and so kudos to her for, uh, for sitting there and watching enough golf with me to, to know that one too. Um, but, but man, just up and down the tournament was great, right? We saw a, a, an eighth straight tournament at Southern Hills where the winner came from the lead or co-lead after, uh, after Friday's, um, after Friday's round. So, uh, unlikely Justin Thomas had a 1.2% chance. I think I saw it was uh, going into, into Sunday, Sunday to, wow. uh, to win the, the tournament and uh, you know, everything broke his way and he played a hell of a round of golf. Um, and, and so did, I want to, I want to talk about Zalatoris a little bit too, because there were some Definitely. points where he, where he, um, he, he could have won that. And, and there were some points where he melted down, uh, the double bogey on uh, on 16, I believe it was 15 or 16, uh, that that uh, sort of took him out of it. But he's been knocking at the door. This is what his fifth major where he's finished in the top 10. And yeah, I'm trying to pull up the list now because this was his sixth major, I believe. Yeah. Um, and and 
his finishes are just absurd. It's it's ridiculous. And, and so he's he's knocking at the door. And, and if he can, he'll get there. I I, I know that he will. Um, I think it'll. <laughs> I think it'll take the right, the right conditions, you know, if they're playing on a, on a, uh, uh, and Hey, maybe next month might be the, the key. Cause, uh, the, uh, the country club in, in Brookline is, uh, is going to be wide open and he'll be able to, to attack a little bit more, which he's used to doing. That's kind of what he does at, a, at Augusta and, and finishes high there. So, um, so I think, uh, I, I think he'll get there, uh, eventually, uh, he's, he's certainly shown the talent, but, uh, then the question becomes, well, where is he on the, on the rest of the tournaments? Because, you know, he's for still the most part this on year, tour. yeah, for the most part this year, uh, he he's been a little more solid, but usually in, in the couple of years past, he's been on the, on the PGA tour. It's, he shows up in the majors and then we don't see him on the, on the leaderboard at all, uh, in, in the rest of the, uh, of the tournaments. So uh, I think we'll put it together though, in a major he's got to, he, 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 and, he and Cam. Uh, Cam Smith are the two guys I think can that can really make a run at a lot of a lot of majors coming up. Well, Zalatoris, and, and I am glad you mentioned it. I mean, the first thing I want to talk about with him is is the the chip off of the cart path on. Oh, I forget yeah. what hole it was, but I think it was on uh, the the par three, the long par three, the like two hundred and fifty yard one, um, yeah. where he had to he got a free, he got a drop, so he had to take the penalty from it but there was no drop zone. And so he's literally dropping the ball on concrete, on cement. And he, he's chipping it off of that, which like, I don't know about you, but when I was a kid and I first started learning golf, I remember my dad being like, you never, ever, ever swing a golf club on cement, never on the driveway. He's like, go, you know? And like, so for me, I still have that like gut instinct of like my dad telling me that when I was a kid and just like seeing him do that. I'm like, wait, no, no, he's going to like break his, he's going to break his club. He's going to, you know, and yet these guys are so, insanely good and then he chipped it to like i think it was like 15 feet and then sunk the bogey putt you know like his his ability to scramble out of mistakes is absurd um friday was a yeah friday i believe it was um he was the best that was the best golf anybody played in the entire tournament was him on friday i forget what he shot there i think he shot like a 65 i think he was five under but some of the scrambles some of the shots he made from impossible positions were just unbelievable. Um, I have the list up. He's played in eight career majors. Uh, one of them was when he was an amateur. So this was his seventh as a tour pro. He's gone second twice, tied for sixth twice, tied for eighth once. He's missed one cut as a pro, and then he had to withdraw, which I believe uh, he withdrew from the, I believe it was the Open last year. Um, it was out of the Open of the U.S. Open last year. So... <laughs> As a he's pro, 24. he's 24. <laughs> and as a pro, he's only missed the cut once. And he has uh, five top 10, top eight finishes at majors. Uh, something about it. And there's guys who just have like, they show up in a big moment and they just play well. He's never won on tour. Um, and yet he's one of the most dangerous guys in majors. It, it's insane. The, the big thing with him is I've never seen a guy who can hit the ball long off the tee like he can strike the ball and get the ball into the green as well as he can scramble as well as he can. And yet I'm terrified at every five foot putt that he has. He has, I wouldn't call it the yips, but he has like the yips light on the putting green. Cause a lot of them fall in and on fr Thursday, Friday, Saturday, those putts were falling. And then even still on 18 to force the playoff to get himself in the playoffs, he sunk an 18 footer for birdie 
on 18 that got him to five under so he could go play in the playoff. So it's not like he can't hit big putts. He hits the long putts better than he hits because he actually does different grips. He does the reverse grip when he's putting within like 10 feet. And then anything outside of that, he does like a standard grip and the take back. It's so weird. And yet it goes in. It's almost like a, like when you'd watch like Sean Marion shoot a three and you're like, how, how is that going in? You know, like it, it's How's just, it getting up. <laughs> yeah. It's just like, it's the ugliest looking shot I've ever seen, you know, or a pitcher who throws submarine and is striking guys out. Like it, it just doesn't make sense. It doesn't compute in your brain, but he's a fantastic golfer. He, he saves his best for the majors. I want to see him win on tour once. Um, because the thing is, is he's dangerously starting to flirt with that, like Louis Oosthuizen level where it's like this guy's, and his thing is, is Louis in his thirties. He's been on tour for what forever, but like, so Zaltor still has a lot of time to get there, but when you're putting all this together and you still haven't won on tour at all, I just like, I want that. I want that monkey off his back. You know, I want him to just like, so that way that conversation doesn't even happen. You know, we've seen Max Homo win twice on tour this year. Um, and yet, you know, Zalatoris, you know, still has never won on. And that, I mean, I love Max. He's one of my favorite golfers on the tour, but, and he's amazing. But I just want to see Zalatoris get there. Um, we've not talked enough about Justin Thomas. Um, just uh, as you said, just an unbelievable round of golf. He hit, what was it, like a 40 foot putt from off the green uh, early in the round when it didn't even look like he was really going to be in contention. At that point, actually, we thought Rory was going to be the one who was charging back because Rory started off yeah, like four days in a row. Yeah, <laughs> I think he was like four under through five holes to start off the the, the day. Um, and all of a sudden you're like, damn, is Rory going to have another crazy bounce back? And I, and I remember I was watching it at the bar and thinking like Rory did this at Augusta <laughs> just a month ago, uh, put together this insane run. And I had that thought of too. It's like, you have two unproven guys. Yeah, we've seen Zaltoris be great, but as we saw throughout the day, Zaltoris went in at eight, uh, eight under and then finished the day at five under, right? So he shot three over on the day. If Rory puts together one of these rounds, especially with Pereira being at the top there too, I'm like, Rory could be back in this. And it ended up being that, no, it was Justin Thomas who was the one who came all the way back with just an unbelievable performance. And that, that drive on, on 17 was so ballsy and um what's amazing with him i think he used three wood which is even crazier what's amazing with him and and one of the things i didn't play off yeah. yeah um uh what what i because he had another one on uh i don't know if it was 17 before the playoff too it was it was 18 in regulation that's what it was it was the, it was the three yeah. wood on 18 in regulation um but then it was <laughs> the the 17 driver but what i love about him and he does this better than anyone else on tour is he so creative and it's a, one of the underrated fun things about golf and anyone who plays it like, and if you start to be able to play pretty well, like you can kind of get to these moments is learning how to be creative with it. And for me, it's like, a, Oh, I'm going to try to like run this ball up. Or I'm going to try to maybe keep this low. Like I can't shape shots, right? He can mm-hmm. make a ball do anything and have the power and speed and ball speed and spin rate and all that shit that he needs and yet still make the ball do whatever he wants. And some of the, the, I mean, that high cut on 18 with the three wood was just bonkers, just absolutely artistic brilliance on a golf course. And one of the big differences between when Arnold and Jack Nicholas and Gary player and those guys played from now is the technology in the game was so different. Like you couldn't hit a ball straight back in those days. 
you had to put spin on everything. You were either a big, you know, cut guy or you're a big draw guy. You either faded it or drew it, right? They, like, Jack, I remember watching an interview with Jack Nicholas, and he was just like, we didn't know how to hit the ball straight because you literally couldn't. The technology wasn't good enough back then. The clubs, the balls, none of it. Nowadays, you can, and that's why you see guys like Bryson who just want to bomb it a million miles. And same thing with Rory. And what I love about what JT did, and I think one of the reasons he ended up winning at this course, is this is a course that you had to be really creative. You know, like I said, Tiger made it to the weekend by just hitting stingers off the tee with a two iron. You know, like this was a golf course that rewarded you for playing that old school style, but with today's technology, as opposed to guys who just want to bomb it a million miles. Because we saw it on Friday, too, after Rory had the amazing Thursday. He was hitting the ball far, but he was driving it, you know, through the fairway. And that rough was so thick that the ball was just jumping out. They had no speed. They couldn't control it out of the rough. So I think, and it's a, it's a really brilliant, and I hope they go back to Southern Hills soon. I hope they play a U.S. Open there and make it even harder um, on the guys because that course requires precision and, and artistry in, in the game of golf that I just think is, is more and more becoming um, less prevalent in, in the world of golf as technology and the players get bigger, stronger, faster swings. Yeah. Yeah, it, it was a challenge all week, and there was no, there was no same uh, conditions on on any given day. Uh, every each day was different. Uh, wind was different. The temperature was different. Uh, it depended on whether you, especially on on the in the opening two rounds, whether you teed off in the morning or, mm -hmm. or in the afternoon. Um, and so, so that that was uh, another fun little element uh, wrinkle to it as well. So. Great golf course, great weekend uh, for golf, and I am looking forward to the U.S. Open uh, next month. Yeah, where's the uh, what what course is the U.S. Open at? This That's year? Uh, it's at the Country Club Country Club in in uh, Brookline, Massachusetts, right outside That's right. Boston. That's right. Um, yeah, Massachusetts in the summertime should, should be fun. Uh, excited, God. <laughs> Getting your Uber, um, <laughs> Tiger Woods. He's a bum walking out there on one leg. He's just. I'm not even going to do it. I was going to go hardcore mass, but I'm not going to do that. Uh, anything else from the PGA tour worth bringing? I'm or the PGA championship. Just a fun weekend. It's a, it was a great tournament. First yeah. playoff we've had since 2017. It was 19. It's been 19, um, 19 majors, majors without a playoff. Since we had a playoff, yeah. which was the longest stretch in, in major history. Uh, yeah. Which says a lot. I do. I also heard the, I think, um, JT was like the set seventh straight major winner might be six, but it was like, I think it was six or seventh straight major winner who was like 27 or younger or something, uh, or like in their twenties. I don't know exactly how old JT is, but it just says a lot about where we are with golf. 29. The last, yeah. 29 Cause the last one was Hideki who I think is like 30. So um, God, golf is in such a great spot and it was cool yeah. too. I mean, Pereira was a rookie. This, he's a rookie on tour. And yet he was in a position to win the, you know, the PJ championship. And I think that's another great example of just how good the golf is right now in the world. Um, yeah. All right, let's take a quick break. We'll come back and hit the NBA playoffs. Uh, we'll wrap up the show with some NFL talk. We're doing our top 10 wide receivers in the NFL today. Uh, I don't know, probably not as contentious as quarterbacks. I don't know if we'll have anything as contentious as quarterbacks, but uh, I know we'll probably end up having very different lists again, just like we did last week. So, uh, take a quick break. We'll be back on the other side talking Golden State and Dallas, as well as the Boston-Miami series. So we talked a little bit about the NBA playoffs as a whole last week. 
and kind of went through some of the games and how there weren't really a whole lot of great moments, you know, more couple, more storylines, the Chris Paul thing, the Sixers, um, you know, we had a few games, obviously Brooklyn losing the first round that has gotten a lot worse in the last week. Um, as the three games in the Boston and Miami series have all basically been blowouts and Golden State Warriors are up three up. So, uh, as a, as a whole, I don't know if I'm ready to call it a disappointment because if we have like an all-time finals or something like that, then no one else will remember the rest of the playoffs, right? It's we're so we're so quick to be caught up like in this moment and be like, no, the playoffs are terrible right now. Um, but again, if we end up having a three-one series, you know, comeback or something in the finals, no one's ever gonna remember what the Eastern Conference semifinals or the conference finals were like, you know. Uh so I will say um a little bit of where I was wrong. Um, I think I, I made a mistake that was something I never thought I would do, but I underestimated the Golden State Warriors. Um, and I remember talking about Dallas after Phoenix was up 2-0, we did a podcast. And I remember saying, like, if you look at the bench guys and the role players for, for Dallas, like, are we really trusting, like, Dorian Finney-Smith and – you know, Reggie Bullock to be shooting threes. And I think that series just kind of brainwashed me a little bit, the way those last couple games went with Dallas and Phoenix, where those guys were hitting every single three. And it was shocking. And, and I just thought, you know, well, Luca's going to draw everybody's attention and we're going to get open threes in the corner. And those guys are hitting them down now, so they're going to be a lot more dangerous. And as it's turned out, those guys aren't hitting their threes. Um no one on Dallas has shot the three well. Well, Luca has not played well, but as much of that too, I, and I said this last week, you know, when you and I were going at it, Scotty, you know, are we really going to say that Andrew Wiggins is going to be a stud for, for a full series? And yes, look, I, I, look and I back, said yes. <laughs> yes, you did. But that given everything we've known about Andrew Wiggins, if I went back, you know, obviously knowing what I know now, I would say maybe there's a higher chance that I'm giving but I still don't regret the take in the moment, right? Because what has Andrew Wiggins done to sh- prove us otherwise? And the last, the first three games of the series, he's shown a lot. Defensively, what he's done to Luca compared to what Mikael Bridges did, and I'm sure he saw all the, you know, well, Luca was able to do all this against Mikael Bridges, who finished second in de- Defensive Player of the Year voting. You know, what, what's he going to do to, you know, Andrew Wiggins? Well, Andrew Wiggins has done an unbelievable job. He's got some weight on him that, you know, Bridges doesn't have. He's got sneaky big size. He's like 6'6", six, 6'7". Six, six, so he's the same size. He can put a little more body into Luka. Um, and he's just staying in his hip pocket. And it's allowed Draymond to not have to pick up the burden of that. Um, and, and really, the whole box and one thing, and, and there was a great moment on the broadcast in game three, I think it was last night, when um, the sideline reporter asked Jason Kidd, you know, in game about, you know, the box and one and, you know, Oh, did the box one give you guys trouble? And I love this answer from Jason Kidd because usually those, those interviews are just absolute dog shit. But he said, he was like, no, we, he's like, we will take block box and one because the box and one are opening up corner threes. We're just not making our threes. It's actually making it easier for them to make those shots. Um, and so, uh, but at the same time, golden state is, is, betting on the fact that like, Hey, if you're going to beat us. It's not going to be with Luca. 
So yeah, we are going to do a boxing one. We are going to make life hard on Luca, who is 23 and is learning how to, you know, adjust and learning how to play in the playoffs. He had a great quote about that after the game, which kind of made it sound like he's already checked out. It was like a, you know, whenever, you know, when our season ends, you know, and then he goes like, well, whenever that'll be, but like when our season does end, um, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll be able to look back on this and say that I learned a ton, which is all true and valid. Um, and he'll be around for a while, but the, the, I don't know if it's the heritage is not the right word, but like the past experience in the playoffs and everything. And, and just like that, that, that superpower that you get when you're playing with people who've been there and done that, that has just taken Wiggins to a, a level that I didn't think he, he would get to. In addition to him, just absolutely dunking on, on oh, Luca in a way that I haven't seen. Yeah. So I made that um, posterizing shot, in my desktop background today <laughs> now. So yeah. It was an, it was an unbelievable dunk. And like I said, I am, I'll hand up. I thought this series is going to be much more competitive. Um, however, I do want all of our listeners to know that Scott has been suspended for, uh, from talking in our group chat about the warriors until the NBA finals. Um, Scott was n- as negative Nelly as negative Nelly gets on Friday night when golden state was up was down like 20 in the first half. And then what did they do, Scotty? Right. They came back and win. And what I keep telling you, I said, it was going to be a, I thought it was going to be a good series, but also the game wasn't going to, you know, the game wasn't over yet. Um, But something you just said too, and we talked about in the break, the third quarter, Golden State's been unbelievable. And more and more, I just believe that the the best teams are the teams, um, you know, games are won and lost in that third quarter and how you come out. And uh, they've been doing it this whole dynasty, but this year alone, this year alone, they have, Averaged in the regular season 28 and a half points uh, in the third quarter with a total differential over the year of 200 plus 231. In this series, they're averaging 10.3, uh, plus 10.3 uh, over crazy. the Mavericks in the third quarter, which is nuts, right? So you crazy. get in these, even if you're down uh, like we were in game two, uh, and to be able to come back uh, in the third quarter and, and sort of get the Mavericks, a young team looking around going, what the hell are we doing wrong? Well, nothing like even in game two, they were hitting their shots. But the thing is, and, and a lot of what led to, to the success in, in the third quarter in game two was, you know, Hey, here, the Warriors have created this amazing three point culture, right? We don't live and die by it, uh, but we can get you with it at any time. But Hey, if we're not shooting well uh, in, in the first half from, from three and they weren't, I think Steph was, was under 20% again. Um, and so was clay. So, Hey, let's go get uh, 62 points in the paint total for the game uh, is what they had in game two with the tallest guy on the court being six, seven for most of the time and Draymond yeah. green. So, uh, I, Hey, I don't know <laughs> if it's not one, it's the other. Right. So, well, so and it's a very it's good, defend. it's also a very good matchup for golden state because Dallas mid season trades Porzingis they do the Spencer Dinwiddie trade, right? And they bring in and they just go all in on the idea of we're going super small. They've been running this super small offense since the trade deadline, basically, right? So basically January, February-ish. Uh, that's give us, what, three and a half, four months of them running this. Golden State's been running small ball since 2015, right? And I think some of that is coming. It's like, all right, you guys might be the, the hot new team and you're playing really, really, really well. Um, Boston and Dallas have the two best records in the NBA, from January into the end of the season. So there was optimism that, you know, Dallas could come in and be this, but it's like, you're playing our game. You're doing our style. 
you know, you're running spread yeah. offense against the Oregon Ducks when Chip Kelly was there. It's like, we were the ones that did this. We invented this. Insert the Bane clip from, you know, the Dark Knight Rises, right? Like, we, I was born in the darkness, right? Cultivated yeah. by it. Like, that's what Golden State is with this small ball death lineup. And so when you're bringing that to Golden State, they love it. They're like, we're, we can push the tempo faster than you. We have better shooters than you. We've done it for longer. And they also have the added bonus that they can play Kevon Looney 25 minutes a game. And he's been dominant down low on the offensive glass, defensive glass, defensively. Um, and he's I mean, even Steph done is good... averaging 10 rebounds a game in the yeah. series. Like, and that's, that's how dominant we but, are on the class. But part of that is also designed um, on both parts. Right, Both teams are putting up insane amount of shots. Right. Uh, I think Dallas went 13 of like 45 from three. I think they've shot over 43s in all three of the games so far. So both teams are putting up a ton of shots and the, the, the pace is out of this world. But also kind of like what the Thunder used to do with uh, Russell Westbrook is it's like we're OK with Steph getting the rebound because Steph gets it and just immediately starts running up court. And then once that happens and Steph has the ball in his hands, he's immediately a threat from the second he crosses half court, which forces defenses into uncomfortable situations. Um, and again, the, the defense that Wiggins has put on, on Luca, it can't be understated how important that is, especially just from the coordinating aspect of what Draymond's doing off ball. Right. And, and realizing like, all right, Hey, like when we do put Wiggins on him for, you know, 20% of the game, you know, for, for 15 minutes or whatever, over the course of a game, you know, that's what we can we can get away with that because then we can run our box in one, then we can run our zone, then we can run our double teams and our actions um, and, and do some of that stuff to really make Luca have to work for it. Um, but the scary thing is too, is just when you see Luca and you see what he's done at 23 and how many, like, again, if Dallas just is shooting 30% from three, instead of the 20% that they're shooting in this series, uh, this is a series like, you know, I know last night was not as close as the final score indicated, but again, if, if the Spencer Dinwiddie's and the Dorian Finney Smith's and all those guys, if they're making the threes at a higher clip, similar to how they were in the first half of game two, this series becomes a totally different thing. And Luca's getting them the ball in the positions where they want it. They're just not executing, it, which is terrifying when you think of as well, like who's the second best player on Dallas? Like it's Jalen Brunson, right. Or Spencer Dinwiddie. And Spencer Dinwiddie's coming off the bench. He doesn't have a running mate. He doesn't have anyone else. It's all Luca, and yet he's gotten them this far. It's a little reminiscent of like the Damian Lillard um, Portland year when they got swept in the Western Conference Finals the, the last year that KD was in Golden State uh, back in 2019. It's a little reminiscent of that. Um, it's just been really interesting to watch. And he's, he's, again, he's so young. He's so good. I think it's a bad matchup for Dallas. But moving forward, you know, having Wiggins – changes the way I at least Wiggins at this level defensively changes how I think of them as a title contender because throughout the whole season I thought all right well if, if it's the Wiggins we know the one we've seen since 2014 when he was drafted you know I don't see how they can win a title with him being that third best option really especially you know because defensively we always knew he had the, the potential to be that good he just never really lived up to it on offense he never lived up to it but defenses we'd see flashes of it and now that he seems to have fully bought into this warrior system running without the ball, he's become a fantastic cutter, which means, you know, Draymond, Steph, they're always finding those guys because they've been running this offense for so long now with him defensively and what he can do again, offensively off ball, but defensively 
you need him to go up against Tatum if they play Boston. You need him to be able to match up against Jimmy Butler to at least give you that 15 to 20 minutes. Um, I don't know which which one are you more afraid of to play? Um, <clears throat> I'd say Miami at this point, uh, just because because of what uh, well, we'll get into it when we talk about it, but the way that they're playing defense, uh, number one, uh, and then the, the way that even even hurt, I think Jimmy Butler is still one of the best players in the left in the playoffs. Um, and then they're getting guys like, like Max Juice who are hitting spot threes, uh, like, uh, like Tyler Hero, who's the sixth man of the year hitting spot threes. Uh, and, and they're getting aggressive, uh, in, in the paint as well with Bam Adebayo. Like it's, it's a tough, it's a tough team and it's a deep team. Like their rotations deeper than, than most of the teams that we've played, uh, that the Warriors have played so far in the, uh, in the NBA playoffs. So, uh, I think that's that's the the matchup that I I'd be less confident in because um, like like with Boston we've seen you can you can play tough defense and run them off the free, the three point line um, and in a way that's kind of what the Warriors did a lot of in 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 uh, in Game Three against the Mavericks uh, and if we're not we're just let, we're daring them to take them yeah. um, so you know I'm cool with that and if you're gonna get you know, a, a 40 point night out of Brown or, or Tatum. Uh, I can live with that. And and then, you know, try, I don't think Marcus smarts, the only guy who can guard us on, on the, on the, uh, on the defensive end, if I'm being honest. So like, especially like if they, if they run that double team off of, you know, off a, off a screen up at the top, somebody's going to be open cutting for the Warriors down in, in the, in the middle or the paint area. So, um, I, I'd I'd rather play them right now. I think that would be a more favorable matchup. But yeah, it's interesting. I because the size is going to be a problem in both series. Like Bam is going to be a problem, but I feel better about having Draymond or Kevon Looney on Bam than I do having to deal with both Horford and Robert Williams and Tatum, who are all six eight or taller. Right, with Horford and Rob Williams both being six ten. Um, that being said. I also think there's a higher likelihood that Golden State against Boston would force Golden State or would force Boston to have to play a little bit smaller. Where Tatum will probably be your four. You probably have to have Jason uh, uh, Jalen Brown as your three, Smart as your one, and then I guess you know Peyton Pritchard or Derek White as as your starting two guard. Um, I would probably feel a little bit better about Boston if I was a Golden State fan. Um, but I think it's a pretty good matchup for both of them. Um, the only scary part, obviously, with uh, Miami is just Miami has so many different shooters. Now, uh, Tyler Hero is not playing tonight. Uh, I don't know if that's injury or if it's COVID. I didn't hear all I saw was from Woj that it was he was ruled out, um, which was it was pretty early this morning, too. So it's something they knew relatively early. I don't remember him getting hurt on Saturday night, but um, I could be wrong. Uh, it'll be interesting. It'll be interesting to see. Um, Let's uh let's move over to that series though for a little bit. Um because honestly just both of these series so far have been a bummer. Um I mean obviously well, you as a you're a Golden State fan so like yeah. for you but I mean like <laughs> for for the average basketball fan uh there just has there been one good game in the conference final so far? I mean game um, 2 of Miami and Boston maybe. Yeah. Um but yeah, even still but even still like Boston was pretty much in control of that game the entire time. Um, 
Miami blew them out in game one. Boston kind of blew them out in game two. And then Miami blow, blows them out at home or blows them out. It was like 25 to six at one point in the first quarter yeah. in, in the Boston Garden. And then, you know, Tatum gets hurt and we think, oh, no, you know, he tore his shoulder. He's out for the year. And then he just comes back onto the court. Now, credit to Boston. They did get it to within, I think, like three. And then Tatum came back in and then Miami just ran off with it there. So I guess that's probably the one. But, I mean, you could say the game two in Golden State and Dallas was a good game, but that's only because Golden State had that unbelievable third quarter where they came back from, you know, they were down 20 at one point in the first half. And then they came all the way back, had the explosive third quarter, and then ultimately uh, end up winning the game handily. But we're six games in to the conference finals, and there has not been a single, like, really good game. So as a whole, I would say both of these have been very disappointing. Um, that being said, I still think the Miami and Boston series is has a very good chance of going to, uh, to a full seven games. Um, in fact, I would, I, it's right at the point now that I think I would actually be surprised if we didn't go a full seven um, in that series. So I'm leaning Boston to have a bounce back win tonight. It's just weird, right? I, I think both of these teams, it's like they either get blown out or they blow the other team out. And then maybe in the game seven, we'll get close. And like, that's a, the epitome of that. I always think of as the, the Toronto Philly series in 2019 that ended with the Kawhi shot where all the first six games were all blowouts. And then game seven was an absolute all timer. So there's still a chance that that happens in this series. And I hope it does, but it's either like Jimmy Butler doesn't have that day or like bam exploding for 31 points when he had scored a total of like 10 through the first two games in game three. Um, but I would expect like, I, I don't think bam's going to have multiple games like that in a row, not with the defensive guys that Boston can throw at him. I'm just having a very hard time reading this series because there's moments where I'm like, is Miami really that good? Like, are they as good as we're looking or is, and also I had this thought too. We got so used to the super team era. And I was wondering, cause last year felt this way for me too. Like the championships did felt like it didn't, it wasn't as big, you know, and I don't know if it's a post COVID thing or whatever, but I think part of it is we've left the era of the super teams where it was like for basically a decade going back to the Miami heat. Um, and you can even go back to like the Kobe, you know, when it was Lakers Celtics, you know, back-to-back -back years um, or two out of three years. And then you had the Orlando series mixed in there too, where it was like Kobe and the Lakers were like, they're the best team. But then you also had the big three in Boston, but then you had the Miami, you know, player empowerment stuff that all kind of kicked off. And so then it was like, all right, well now we know who's beating this guy. Like that was the kind of team. And then you had the Spurs kind of mixed in there too. And then the golden state and then <laughs> Cleveland and that whole run. And it just felt like there was always like, basically one or two teams that was like, how the hell is anybody going to beat them? And so it always led up to like a, Oh my God, I can't believe the Mavericks just beat the heat in the play in the, you know, I can't believe the, the Spurs beat the heat. Right. And then it's like, Oh, well, of course the heat won because they have Bosch and Wade and LeBron. And then the golden state year, it's like 2015, 16, you know, 15 was a great year and they were this unbelievable team. And then 16, they looked unbeatable, but then they blow the 3-1 series. And then 17 with KD being there, it's like, again, who's beating them? And now we're just in this kind of weird post-super team era where there's so much talent in the league. And there's like seven or eight teams that you feel could make a run and win. So it's like, is Miami not as good because they're not as good as what those teams were back then? And that's why it feels less exciting. And like, maybe we just need to be better about comparing it to you know, the rest of the Eastern conference are paying, comparing them to the Boston Celtics right now. 
But it just it doesn't feel like either one of those teams to me is like, oh, this is a really, really amazing, you know, legendary type team. And sometimes there's stretches in the NBA where that happens. It's just yeah. we're in a weird time, I think. There's a difference, I think, a distinct one between the super team where you have three uh, legitimate superstars in the game uh, and then having one, maybe two, and then putting the right guys around them. Uh, and the Warriors learned the hard lesson from that. Uh, in the post Kevin Durant years uh, where they were left with a very thin bench, not a whole lot of experience. They were depending a lot on young guys uh, and, and the, the, uh, the aged, shall we say? Uh, well, and Steph and Clay, I mean, back. obviously Clay being out for two years <clears throat> right. with the injuries and then, and then Steph missing most of last season yeah, or, or two years ago, whatever year that was. Um, so it's, to me, I think these teams like the teams pre KD and now this year post KD uh, for the Warriors in particular have are better because they're better units, right? It's not three guys. And then let's hope somebody else drops in eight, somebody else drops in 10, somebody else drops in 12 and we win the game by, by 11. And it doesn't even look like the, the other team even tried, mm-hmm. Right. Uh, now it's like, what are the combinations that we can put on the floor, especially with all the action? I mean, look at all the action that that Memphis or not well, Memphis too. Yeah, that was running. Uh, they're a young team who can run all over the floor, especially when Jaws out there. Uh, Miami does a lot of the same thing with their with their guys. They give Jimmy the ball and let everybody move around him. And then when he, he does the same thing off ball as well. Um, but that's more what you're seeing is, is the the cohesion of of a stronger unit rather than three superstars that tower above everybody else in the, in the stats lines. And then, uh, and then you're going to win because of those three guys. Well, and there's it maybe a, be- a better way to phrase it is just there's parody in the NBA and we didn't have parody for a long time. We had a handful of teams. And so I guess my question kind of boils down to, we say we want parody, right? We always say, you know, especially when you're the have nots, when you are one of the teams that's at the top, no, parody. We don't need parody. Parody's when you're Alabama. Parody's, yeah, right. Um, <laughs> but then we just talked about this with college football, right? Who, what conference has parody? The Pac-12. And what conference has been punished for their competitive balance? The Pac-12. Mm-hmm. Right. They're the ones that have been hurt the most by it. So the question really comes down to like, what it, it, is parody in the NBA a good thing? Because. From everyone can say they hated when it, every year it was Golden State and Cleveland, but I guarantee you everybody I watched. That. I know you didn't, but we're talking about the casual <laughs> basketball fans, right? And I remember saying this on the pod at one point, but then also like when KD left uh, Golden State too, it was this, this idea of like, I, I think the casual fans buy into it and will watch the playoffs and will watch the, um, you know, the NBA finals because – like my mom doesn't watch really follow the NBA. Like she watches like the Sixers occasionally, or if I'm home, you know, we'll watch the Sixers, but she doesn't really follow it, but she knows who Steph is, you know, she loves Steph, you know, and she knows who Kevin Durant is by name. She obviously yeah. knows who LeBron is, you know, but that's kind of where it stops for her. And that is what will get casual fans to watch those big games because the more they're there and they're the teams always in the finals, the casual fans watch, which is why when you look at the TV ratings from 15 to 19, the four years that the Golden State went in and three of those finals being against Cleveland and LeBron versus what they're like the last couple of years, you know, even last year with the Milwaukee and Phoenix finals and people want to say, oh, it's the small markets. No, it's it's it, it's a lack of the casual fan 
who doesn't understand the storylines, who isn't familiar with them. You know, when Boston's always in the World Series, when the Patriots are always in the Super Bowl, you give either you love Tom Brady and the Patriots or you hated them. So people will watch to either watch you lose. Think about it like this, like the WWE, right? Is the WWE mm-hmm. built on the idea of parody? And they are, it's not sports, right? The whole thing is it's all fixed. And they, have, they write these things out to entertain people, to get as many people to watch as possible, to get casual fans to buy WrestleMania and, and watch WrestleMania. And so we can sit there and say that parody is objectively good for the sport, especially now when we have so much talent. But I think part of, and there'll be more and more on this as we get further and further away from the decision and the, the player empowerment kind of surge that we had there back in like 2011, 2010. But I think there's a real argument that parody in basketball may not actually be the best thing for it. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, I mean, look, if if you're at this point a casual fan watching because Steph's still playing, uh, you know, I I don't know what that what that does if if we end up losing the series and it's Luca versus Jimmy Butler, Luca versus uh, 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 Jason Tatum, right? Like, does the casual fan turn that off? Uh, probably, I'm guessing. Uh, but, you know, I mean, maybe there's 50% of them that will be like, oh, well, maybe there's someone new that that is the new uh, level of Steph Curry that I can I can latch on to as a, as a casual fan too. But I think in order for that to happen, they have to get to a certain point. And that's why, like, I wish we had Vito on right now because he'd be a perfect person to ask. I'd be curious, like, did you know more about what was going on in the NBA from 2015 to 2019 and that that four to five year run when Golden State started than you do now where it's like, yeah, he says to us all the time. He's like, yeah, like I root for Clay Thompson because I went to high school with him and I root for the Sixers because I live in Philly and I love him beat, you know? But other than that, like, he doesn't know a ton else, a ton of other stuff that's going on. The Jokic's and the Doncic, Luka and Giannis, and these guys who are superstars and MVPs of the league, but the casual fan doesn't have any idea who they are. And I, I would be, I just, I think when it's LeBron and it's Steph and it's names you know and faces you recognize, the casual fans are always going to buy in more. But I'm curious as to people who, like us, who are, you know, we just had a decade of that every single year. And now it's like, all right, well, I, I guess Milwaukee was the best team last year, you know, but people are like, yeah, but if KD's foot was an inch behind the line mm-hmm. in, the, in the conference semis, then it could have been Brooklyn who won the title right. last year. Um, so I think it's just, I, I don't know. It's an interesting conversation. Like, I feel like it's almost, we hit this, this mass blow up of the NBA where the NBA grew to such an extreme extent to the level that we really haven't had since Jordan um, and, and, you know, Magic and Larry. But especially in the modern era, when you're compa- when you're competing with the NFL, when you're competing with all these other attention, you know, you're fighting to get eyeballs. I think for the league as a whole, I don't know if we're going to be back to that point. I think diehard basketball fans love it. Uh, I think people like you and me who watch all season and watch the regular season, we love seeing the, the John Morants and the Anthony Edwards and all these young bucks who are coming in. But dynasties – and this is an old Colin Coward take, so I kind of hate that I'm doing it, but dynasties are objectively good for sports. And people can say they hate them, but you're going to watch because you're either going to watch to see them continue their greatness or you're going to watch and see them lose. Um, and I just feel like with this Boston-Miami series is a great example of this. Where I'm just like, I don't know how I feel about either of these teams at this point. I just have no idea. There were times I thought Miami is like, 
as bad of a one seed as we've had in the last five years. And then there's times I think they're the best team left in the playoffs. And same thing with Boston. I'm like, how is Boston so good? Sweep Brooklyn, beat Milwaukee and Giannis, who when Giannis is the most dominating force, and then lose by 20 at home in the Boston Garden in game three. It just doesn't make sense to me. To no Jimmy gas Butler, in the like, tank. <laughs> it just doesn't make sense. Um, all right, let's take a break. Uh, come back. We're going to do a little bit of talk on the Washington Commanders making a uh, interesting purchase, not a player or a coach, but uh, instead they bought a new piece of property. And we'll dive into that a little bit, as well as wrap up with our top 10 wide receivers in the NFL. All that coming up to close up the pod. All right, so we'll wrap up with a little NFL talk. Um, one thing we I did not mention last week, but meant to, but we just were doing so much last week. The Eagles signing James Bradbury. What a move. We were just talking about it in the break. Yeah. Unbelievable. Jeez. Howie Roseman, man. I mean, I, I've heard some reports, too, that this year and, and post Carson and Doug Peterson and stuff, um, Jeffrey Lurie, who was kind of getting a little nosy around the, the team as obviously as the owner, um, he has technically the right to do that. But I think we've seen over the years that that's not necessarily great ownership. He has been very hands off this offseason. He's given pretty much all control and just full trust in Howie Roseman. And it's hard to say that he has not knocked it out of the park. I saw someone did a poll. Are you more excited to watch the Eagles offense or defense this year? And I actually said the defense, especially now with James Bradbury. Um, they have an elite defensive line. They could have one of the best linebacking rooms in the NFL over the next five years. If you know, the guys, they obviously Nicobe Dean, but then also if Kazir white works out and you have TJ Edwards kind of fitting in there too. And then between Darius Slay and Bradbury, you have two really good corners that are going to fit. I mean, Slay, immediately takes your number one guy out. So it's less work on Bradbury too. He's going to get the number two option most of the time. Still a little weak at safety, but there's some rumblings about maybe a Jesse Bates trade. So just shout out again, Howie Roseman. Um, it's like, a, he's like an ex-girlfriend that you just kind of keep getting back together with, you know, not to go full Colin, Colin Coward on this podcast, but like, it, it really yeah. does feel, it really <laughs> does feel that way sometimes. You're just like, God, he's so bad. It's such a toxic relationship. Like, I just don't – he doesn't care about us. He doesn't ever listen to the fans. Is it? And then he comes off and just does an absolutely unbelievable job in this offseason. So, um, <laughs> just wanted to make sure we mentioned that. Uh, the other bit of NFL news I wanted to touch on a little bit here before we got into our top 10 wide receiver list. Um, the Washington Commanders, uh, the Washington whatevers, uh, and Dan Snyder have spent $100 million on a – piece of land about 200 acres in prince william county which is the same county that you live in scott uh and yeah sure I, is i live just so about, much for my taxes i'm yeah. screwed <laughs> maybe if they end up going through with it but the speculation is that this is a site that the washington commanders might end up building a new football stadium at now, anyone who knows anything about Raljan and that whole stadium, FedEx Field, the dump that it is, um, the complaint and living in this area for the last four years and talking to Washington fans, um, the, the number one complaint you hear over and over again is it's such a pain in the ass to get out there. And I've been to that stadium. I've seen concerts there. I've seen football games there. It is a pain in the ass to well, get out and, to. And not for just the driving. There's It's hard on public transportation, too. Oh, yeah. There's like no access. Metro, it's mm -hmm. like a mile and a half walk. Yeah. Uh, 
And it would be worse down here in Prince William County because there is no metro that no. runs down the 95 corridor. And when you look at where they bought it, which is Dumfries, Virginia, uh, is the town. Looks like Dumfries, which I remember driving down here when I was in high school and thinking that was the funniest shit ever. Man- Manassas, which looks like Manasses and Dumfries. Uh, just brilliant, brilliant naming. Um, <laughs> shout out Manassas. That is actually where my, uh, I mean, Warrington is where my mom was born. So, but in that same little area there. Um, but yeah, none, I'm right none, in between them. <laughs> yes, you are. Uh, nonetheless, this is another prime example of an ownership group and an organization that just has zero pulse on what their fan base wants, has no clear direction, and is being run by the worst owner in professional sports. Um, it's not enough that, you know, he's going through a, you know, federal investigation right now, not only for sexual misconduct and harassment, uh, but also now for a potential tax evasion and uh, having multiple sets of books, all allegedly. Um, but then to come out and you drop $100 million on this. And, and for people who don't understand and don't live in this area, you know, traffic is bad around every major city. Every major city says, oh, the traffic here is the worst, right? You're out in LA, you're in Philly, you're in New York, anywhere. DC is up there with as bad a traffic as exists in the entire country it is absolutely miserable getting around here and in particular it's miserable anytime you have to touch 95 and this it's that and then the the it's the there's two problems one it's because the the population boomed faster than the infrastructure could grow so now there's there's no there's no way even if you if you come out to to the area where they just bought this land in prince william county there's one good way in and the rest are, are back roads where the it's 35 to 45 uh, that are two lane roads. I, mm-hmm. I don't know what to tell you. That's just the infrastructure. Well, and that's and not that far from the capital, honestly. No, I, it, once you get out, I mean, so middle of the day, JP Finley, who does local radio um, in uh, Washington, DC for, for their sports talk, did a screenshot of like, he was right next to the Capitol and did a screenshot of like, hey, I'm two blocks away from the Capitol, and this is how long from the center of Washington, D.C. to where the stadium is. And the closest suggested like Google Maps way there, he screenshot his Google Maps suggestions, was 47 minutes. Yeah, and as the, the crow stadium. flies, maybe 10 miles, 15 yeah. miles. And, it's, and the other aspect of this, too, is that Dumfries is right off of 95. There's no way to get there from the Washington, D.C. area other than taking 495 down or taking 95 down. And on top of that too, on the weekends with the amount of people that travel on there, I've never driven on 95 on a weekend where there wasn't significant traffic. Particularly, especially the the first four weeks when people are still going to the beach, particularly, particularly (laughs) right around that area. Um, And I've gone in the dead of winter. I've gone in the summertime. You said, Scotty, people coming back from, from the beach, people coming from North Carolina and just people traveling up and down the East coast. 95 goes all the way down the whole East coast. Uh, This is moronic. And again, it shows how out of touch this ownership group, the franchise, the organization as a whole is from it. It's just baffling at this point. It's baffling. And even though they're like a rival of mine or whatever, but living here and stuff like I feel awful for Washington fans. Because they're already so desolate when it comes to, you know, you have Carson Wentz as your starting quarterback this year. You have an owner who is just an absolute all-time scumbag um, and, and, and slime ball of a human being. And now 
the one thing, the one thing consistently I've heard over four years of living here and then an additional four years of going to college with a ton of Washington fans was just, can we get a stadium near the city? Make it feel like they're actually in Washington. It's the joke forever is like Rajan is in Maryland. Like you're not even close to the stadium. It's a 40 minute drive to get from DC to the stadium as it is. And now we're talking about over an hour with the traffic that's going to come in on Sundays. There's not going to be infrastructure. And if you're going to invest a hundred million dollars, do it to renovate the stadium, do it to make this shitty stadium you already have better and, and at least create some more amenities, you know, invest in the infrastructure there. And instead they well, are doing the exact opposite of what they should be doing. And yeah, but it's the argument, just, it's bullshit. the argument against that is, there's already an NFL team in Maryland. Why would you invest more money knowing that your the large majority of your fan base isn't on the Maryland side of DC? It's in the city. It's in Northern Virginia. Sure, but even, nonetheless, like you're not doing anything for the the fans in Washington DC. You just called yourself the Washington Commanders, your new name, based off of this whole idea of being in Washington DC. Like it, they they made so many ties to dc with this new branding thing and then it's just a giant middle finger to that because i'll say this too yes there are a ton of washington fans in the state of virginia and because virginia is such a big spot you know big state comparatively to you know washington dc yes there probably are more washington fans in the state of virginia than there are in washington dc and you can say the same thing about you know like you know carolina some of those other people before the panthers were around like they grew up as washington fans a lot of teams you know all the way down until you know charlotte yeah i mean that whole stretch it was like some were falcons fans and then the other half were washington fans now you have the panthers in there and they've been around long enough where like there's a whole new generation of fans who've grown up and they've been to two super bowls in the last you know since the washington was last you know really even a threat um let alone the last time they won a super bowl which is you know mid 90s this is just, again, it's showing how out of touch they are. If they really wanted to do it, if you really wanted to, to, to ingratiate yourself, find a way to build it in the city or find a way to build it right outside of the city where you can access it from the metro. Because a ton of Washington fans literally just live in Washington, D.C., which is a massive city with a huge population. And you're just saying, oh, fuck you, because those people, a lot of those people also don't have cars. Right. And this is it, it's out of the reach of even being able to Uber there, let alone yeah. how much it would be with the surcharges and on, a game on Sunday. <laughs> yeah, it's just an absolute mistake. And now look, the file like they literally haven't even filed this purchase with Prince William County yet. So there's still chances there's like they're still looking at other places, too. But if you're spending one hundred million dollars on land, chances are that's where they're going to try to build a new stadium. And it's just absolutely, it's bullshit. It's a terrible idea. Or a better quarterback. (laughs) Yeah. Like I live 25 minutes outside of the, I live 25 minutes outside of DC. Right. And it's still a 45 minute drive for me to get to Dumfries, if not further. Um, And granted, I live like due West of the city, but nonetheless, it's like anyone who lives in Northern Virginia is not going down to, to Dumfries to, to go to a, a Washington game. They're just not, they're not dealing with it because the only way I can get down there, even though I do live 25, 30 minutes West of DC is to go back down through 95. So everything's going to funnel back down to that road. The people in Northern Virginia want to come to those games are going to have to funnel back down that road. You know, I guess it helps for anyone coming up North, but that's basically Fredericksburg. And then you're getting to the real boondocks. And those are people who are going up Richmond, for like a weekend. Yeah. yeah in, in <laughs> Richmond too. Um, 
But even still, like the people coming up from Richmond or whatever, that's going to be an hour plus drive as it is. And they're going to have to get hotel rooms. And then on top of it, it's still probably going to take them 30 minutes to get from Fredericksburg to Dumfries, given all the traffic and everything that'll be going on. So just the organization that just continues to shoot themselves in the foot over and over again, but are willfully doing it just because they have a, a piece of shit owner who wants to continue to be a piece of shit. So it's it's newsworthy. I'll never miss on an opportunity to dump on Dan Snyder. Um, but just, just, and it just sucks. And I feel really bad for Washington fans. I do, because it's a great fan base when they're invested. It's a fantastic fan base. And I just, I feel for them. Uh, all right. You want to do our top 10 wide receivers? Yeah, this was a tough one. Really hard, really hard, especially with the, of- the boom of the young wide receivers over the last couple of years. Yeah. And like, I try not to project too much. You know, but at the same time, some of the best wide receivers in the league are guys who've only been in the league for one or two years. So um, you have to kind of project a little bit, but also the the line. I think there's a clear cutoff after like 15. Um, but then it's always then it's personal preference. Right. And then it's just like, oh, well, I really yeah. like this guy or I really like this guy. And then you have, you know, guys like um, like Amari Cooper, who've been in this conversation over the last few years. But now, for whatever reason, he's in Cleveland and now he's like ranked in the 20s for a lot of these people. So it's a weird, weird list. Who do you have as your number one wide receiver uh, heading into the 2022 season? Pains me greatly being on the Los Angeles Rams, but Cooper Cup, I mean, he's he's the one of the best route runners, if not the best route runner. Uh, he can do it over the middle on slants. He can beat you deep. He can take you outside. He can do it all. Uh, and he's good out of the backfield too. So, uh, a- and he's got his quarterback back for a second straight year. Who's uh, pretty competent, made my top 10 list of quarterback uh, in Matthew Stafford. So until you prove me wrong, I mean, he's, he's number one to me. Yeah. Um, I don't have him number one. I actually have him at number three. Um, okay. Which I, I understand everyone's like, he just had 2000 yards. He had the triple crown. He had all this stuff like, and I get it. I mean, Cooper cup's unbelievable. And I, and I do think he's in, um, the, the most elite tier of wide receivers we have, but part of this exercise for me is also like taking him off of that team and putting him on another team. Right. And wide receivers, so much of their bread gets buttered based off of who their quarterback is. Um, so if Cooper cup is playing with Jimmy Garoppolo or with Jalen hurts or with Dak Prescott, you know, if you change the quarterback, you're going to see very different versions of him. So I'm not holding that against him necessarily, but I also think the relationship he has with uh, Stafford was unique and they clearly built up unbelievable chemistry. I think that system helps him out a lot too. Um, And all of that is so completely true with him, but I do think still, I think there are guys who just as a wide receiver alone can do slightly more, um, which is why I think I, I know where you're going with this. <laughs> I have Devonte Adams with my, as my that's, number one. That's, that's my number two. And that's exactly why I had him there. Uh, it was because you know, he, he can do it all. <laughs> like, yeah. like he was Debo before Debo and he's a better route runner than Debo. And he's as good after the catch as Debo. Um, he can high point balls as well as anybody. He's insanely fast. His route running is absolutely disgusting. Um, yes, he's benefited with having Aaron Rodgers over the last couple of years, no question. So just like I said that about Cooper Cup, I have to say the same thing about Devontae Adams. But I just think there's more explosion, uh, explosion with him as a route runner, um, as just a as a just a threat. And I think when he goes to Vegas this year and plays with Derek Carr, I think he's still gonna be just as terrifying. So th- who's better without the other? Devontae Ooh. Adams without Aaron Rodgers or Aaron Rodgers without Devontae Adams? That's a really good question. Um, I'm going to say I think it's Devontae Adams. I think it's Aaron Rodgers 
um, just because we've seen Aaron Rodgers turn third and fourth round picks into pro bowlers. Um, and we've seen him win, win a Super Bowl with guys like that. Um, but I think it's a, I think it's a great question. Um, I think Derek Carr is a really good quarterback. And so I think he benefit. I think, you know, Devonta Adams does really well with him, but if Devonta Adams is playing with Kirk cousins or Mitch Trubisky or, you know, name, whatever, or, or, or even better, like pair him with a rookie quarterback, right? Like if he was with Trevor Lawrence last year, or if he was with Zach Wilson last year compared to like, if you give Aaron Rodgers a rookie, rookie wide receiver, I feel like Aaron Rodgers is going to get more out of the rookie wide receiver than Devonta Adams will get out of a rookie quarterback. But I don't think it's a huge margin. I think it's a fantastic question. Um, all right, so you have Devonta Adams number two. My number two is Justin Jefferson. Um, size, speed, the uh, – so, yeah, we had the same top three just in number different three. orders. Yeah. <laughs> um, size, speed, can catch the ball, uh, unbelievable catch radius. He's just – he's taken over the league. I mean, back-to-back years – He's done it twice now, which is why I have him ahead of the guy I have at number four. Um, he's still so young. I think I've said this on the pod before, but just like with running backs and how, you know, the tread on the tires, you want to get as much of them when they're young. I think we're starting to be able to see more and more of that with wide receivers because they're coming in so polished, which didn't used to be the case. Um, and I, I just think Justin Jefferson is is a freak. I, I really he- do. Reminds me, this might be a stretch, but he reminds me of Randy Moss with the That's explosive so funny. speed. When, the second you said that, that was the name that popped into my head too. The, the explosive speed, he can jump over anybody. Uh, and like he he's one of those guys where it's like he he's so smart, he understands where the defense is and breaks off of it in routes. And it's it's just a matter of, hey, Kirk, just put the ball where I am. You yeah. see that 18 and purple turn around and just throw it. I'll be there. Yeah. Um, and, and he's, so, 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 he's so smooth. Like that's the thing about yeah. that reminds me of Randy Moss is Randy Moss was always so smooth when he caught it to the point where it's like, is he even running? And one of the things, I, and again, I love Devonte Adams. He's my number one guy, but like Devonte Adams gets guys because of his sharp movements, and right? His size too. And, yeah. And, and the fact that Justin Jefferson can do that, by just running by guys and just looking, making it look effortless is a testament to how explosive and yeah. how brilliant he is as a wide receiver. I mean, yeah, Randy Ross, Randy Moss ran the the F- most effortless four two I've ever seen in my life. Yeah. So yeah, unofficial, <laughs> unofficial. It was yeah. before the official times, but still. Um, and he doesn't look. He doesn't have that kind of speed. Um, but that smoothness in him, whereas mm-hmm. like I look, I look at Devonte Adams and I see more like To, you know, just physical yeah. freak, strong explosive but in that way of just like he'll break your ankles with these quick little jab steps and and stuff in his route running and when i see like i always find it amazing when you see like a guy run like a deep crosser and there's never like a hard cut and yet he's open anyway like that's the kind of stuff with uh justin jefferson that i'm just like how are you even open like you didn't plant your foot and make a sharp cut and break somebody's ankle it's just like he just ran it so effortlessly perfectly smoothly and yet is still open by five yards at the top of his route. It's, it's really impressive. Um, yeah. All right. So we had the same top three. Who do you have at number just in different orders? Uh, who do you have at number four? I have Stefan Diggs at number four. Reluctantly. I, I don't do this a lot with him because uh, we have a, a, a beef against each other from his college days, but that's neither here nor there. Um, uh, I have him here because uh, again, elite route runner, great ball catcher uh, and 
the pairing at quarterback is, is really what does it for me. I mean, the fact that he's put up these monster seasons with Josh Allen um, and they're only getting better at wide receiver. I think he makes the other wide receivers better and, and he helps a lot uh, in terms of defenses being able to uh, or playing against defenses, being able to, to pull guys off of him uh, and, and onto other wide receivers and get himself open. So uh I think he does does an elite job of that. He's got an elite quarterback, uh, and he's been up over a thousand yards for the last three years. So I'm uh, I'm well on high on uh, on Stephon Dix. I have him at five, um, <laughs> and the only reason is is I think he's at the peak, and it's about not not to say it's going to like drop off, but I think we've seen with some of the older like not older but guys who are like 28 you know, 29, you know, yeah. As they've gotten in, I mean, Stefan Diggs had his blow up season in, in like 2016, 2017 with Minnesota. Um, you know, he's been in the league for, for five, six years now. Right. And I think again, as this new wave of these young wide receivers starts to come, it's not that Stefan Diggs isn't amazing and won't be a top five. I have him number five. It's just that like, and, and this will make more sense when I say who I have at number four, but I just, it's like, would I rather have him, or one of the young explosive guys who is, is burning onto the scene here. Um, I think we have a flip-flop four or five. So probably. (laughs) Um, And again, I love Stefan Diggs. It's that same thing with Justin Jefferson. It's just smooth. It's effortless. He can burn still. He's got the deep ball stuff and he's hit that point too, where he's just so reliable. Like, I think that's a, that's an underwriting thing, like just full trust in him. And that's why same thing with Cooper cup and Devonta. It's just like, once you hit that, full trust factor with him where it's like, I know he's not dropping balls. I know he's going to be a number one wide receiver and it's going to be this way for multiple years. Um, and, and he's just, he, he, he's good at everything. Um, it's, it's now it's just going to be, he had a little bit of the injury bug last year. Does he shake that? Is he able to stay healthy this year and stay on the field? Cause Buffalo definitely needs him to um, my number four was Jamar chase. Um, yep, that's and, my number five. <laughs> yeah. And so we, like you said, we, we flip flopped on these ones. Um, I think of Jamar Chase as like when we saw the early flashes of Tyree Kill, like that first year with Mahomes and even, the you know, with uh, Alex Smith the year before, if you could be like, hey, go, you can go back and, ha- and have that guy on your team, even though, yeah, he had an amazing rookie year. And, yeah, we've seen these unbelievable plays. But, like, are we – are you want to do it yet because he's still young? I would 10 times out of 10 bet on Tyree Kill or any of these young wide receivers. Same thing with Justin Jefferson last year. Um Jamar Chase was my favorite wide receiver in last year's class. I know we we went back and forth with him and Waddle and Smith, and I was steadfast on I'm taking Jamar Chase. And we just saw it, man. I mean, the dude had a four-touchdown game. He had multiple 200-yard games. He had a 300-yard game. Um, he's just – he's a he's another level of athlete. And some of the ball tracking, playing above his size, uh, what you can use him in, in some running games and behind the line of scrimmage, like – I am not usually a big fan of like bubble screens in general, but with him, just like I, just like with Tyree kill, it's like, you're going to give him the ball, even if it's behind the line of scrimmage, even if most bubble screens don't work, I trust that he's going to get something out of nothing. Um, I love Jamar chase. He was who I had number four. So we both had yeah, four and too. five there. Um, yeah. He, uh, Jamar's top, top three in touchdowns and top three in yards per catch as a rookie. And this is coming off a of preseason where everyone was like, don't draft him in fantasy. You can't not that this has anything to do with fantasy, but like don't draft him in fantasy. You can't catch anything. He's not going to be any good this year. 
because he dropped five straight balls in in the preseason. Get out of here! What were we thinking? Uh, yeah, because yeah, they he's didn't elite, have the dude. white stripe on the ball. Right, he's elite. <laughs> I mean, it was the best. It was the best season of a rookie, best rookie season a wide receiver has ever had. And statistically, it's probably in the top twenty best seasons any wide receivers ever had. Um, and he did that as a rookie after having not played for a year. And I just think it's it's only going to get better. Um, all right, number six for me, I'm going Tyreek Hill. Um, Interesting. Yeah, he was a tough one to place, right? But ultimately, it's just like who scares the shit out of you when they have the ball in your hands. And I know that the Chiefs as a whole didn't live up to the same offensive explosion that they had in years past. But they were still so fucking good. And anytime Tyreek Hill has the ball in his hands, it scares the shit out of you. And guess what? When he's in Miami, it's going to be the same thing. His speed yeah. hasn't diminished. He was He's still the fastest player in the NFL. He still is dynamic, whether it's on end arounds, whether it's in short yardage, whether it's the deep ball, whether it's over the middle. He can do everything. He's just another year older, right? So that's why I didn't have any higher. But if, you, if you're talking about the list of guys who you don't want the ball in their hands when you're trying to guard them, I mean, how does anybody go above Tyree Kill? Like, he scares me as much as anybody still. And I, I couldn't put him any lower than, than six on my list. Um, and I even still, I would, I would even flirt with having him ahead of Stephon Diggs still. Because I, 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 I think he's still a top five guy. I have him all the way down at eight. Um, I, I agree with you. He's still, I think, an elite. Uh, and this is part of where, where you know, this list was really hard to come up with because they are all so close. Uh, I have him at eight. I think he's still elite. Uh, I think he can still beat you deep. I think he's still good in the running game. The problem is Jalen Waddle can do all those things, and he's much younger. Uh, and not only that, they're going to be splitting uh, touches and catches uh, in that offense. And I'm not sure who Tua is going to favor because uh, last year we saw like he he started to favor um, Jalen Waddle, and then that sort of took off and it was just like Jalen, 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 Jalen all day long. Uh, and nobody else was getting the ball, uh, including in the running game. So um, I'm, I'm thinking that that's probably going to be a little bit different with Mike McDaniel at the helm because he's a little more creative on offense, but uh, I, I don't know, just the split for me that uh, of volume that they're going to get is why I, took Tyreek down just a couple of notches. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I still not looking at these lists in terms of where they're playing. I'm looking at these guys as who the player is. And to go back to the question you, you brought up about Devonte Adams, there's not a wide receiver in the league right now who makes their quarterback better than Tyreek Hill. You can put Tyreek on any team yep. and because of his speed, the explosion, but you can use him in the running game, short passing long, everything. He is such a dynamic. It's, it's honestly, it's the, it's like Lamar or Michael Vick. Like they're just so dangerous and explosive with the ball in their hands that you just always have to account for it in every situation. And it scares the shit out of you. And when Kansas city was just using him more and more as the deep ball guy, like I've never seen a player catch the ball, look like he's about to lose two yards and then ends up picking up eight more than Tyree kill, you know, on a little swing pass or on a little bubble screen. Um, and it's the same thing with like, Jamar Chase it's that same just fear factor when you see him he strikes the fear of God in you um so yeah I mean if we're ranking them based off of fantasy projections which I think is more in line with like how you at least your justification came keeping him at eight I would also have him lower on the list because of that um but if you're just talking about put him on the New York Jets with Zach Wilson last year Zach Wilson has a significantly better season put him on you know 
with with Mitch Trubisky, put him with Justin Fields, put him with any young quarterback or any not good quarterback, and he becomes, you know, that team immediately gets elevated. Not to say that these other guys don't do that too, but I just don't think anyone else strikes the fear in you in the way that Tyreek Hill does. Um, all right, so who do you have at number six then? Oh, Scotty's on mute. I have, Scotty's I on have mute. Mike Me Evans. We need to come up. We need to come up with like a a thing whenever you start talking and you're on mute still. Get mute shamed. Uh, I have Mike Evans at six. Ooh. Yeah, I just uh, for the for the physicality, uh, the the number of touchdowns that he provides you, um, and I don't know if you think and and because I I have a feeling that you're gonna think he's just a system guy with Tom Brady. No. Uh, Okay, good. Uh, because he proved it uh, before Tom before, Brady got yeah. there, and uh, and so I mean, again, the yardage, the the reliability, the the ability to go up and get the ball, uh, put it wherever uh, wherever he wants the ball to be, and, and catch it, high point it, all that stuff, uh, just just phenomenal. And and if there's a guy in in the red zone that's more reliable uh, at, at catching the ball and getting a touchdown for you. Uh, name him, maybe Devontae Adams, but uh, but Mike Evans is right there. So that's why he's six for me. I have him at 10. Um, so he is on my list still. Uh, everything you said is accurate. He's much better than just the red zone target, which I think big fantasy players focus on, right? Because there'll be games where he has three catches and two touchdowns, you know? Um, but he's a lot better than that. I think he also takes up a lot of defensive energy you know, a lot of defensive game planning. Um, at this point for me, it's, it's the injury stuff. It's the age and the injury stuff. You know, if I'm, if I'm taking him on, you know, we're building up a team, there's a new NFL expansion team. And maybe that's the way, you know, we should rank, we should, you know, conceptualize ranking these, right. Where it's like team number 33 is added to the NFL and we get to pick, you know, we're ranking out. Like it's a, what are those, the, the drafts called when the, the expansion drafts, you know, yeah. we're doing an expansion draft and we're ranking out all these players and we're not fitting it to any system. Um, to me, the injury, the age stuff is starting to come into play. But you're right. He's the best red zone weapon. I would say Tyreek Hill and Devontae Adams would be the only other ones I would think of just because of how much you can do with those two around the goal line. And just Devontae's so good at getting separation at the goal line. But Mike Evans is as good at high pointing the football as anybody in the NFL and he's been an unbelievable and really productive player for a long time. So um, again, I am at 10, you have him at six, a little bit of separation there, but not, um, not a huge one. All right. Number seven for me, cause I had Tyree kill at six um, Debo. This is where I have Debo. In. I'm sorry, um, Niners fans. Me too. <laughs> we both have him at seven. Yeah. Um, so look, Debo's awesome. Um, I don't really have anything bad to hold it against him um he's a good route runner i think his speed and his explosion um particularly after he gets the ball in his hands makes him a really valuable offensive weapon but when you look at just like being just a wide receiver you know he's still a little bit on the roller side you know and he's a good he's a very good route runner i mean we're nitpicking here right all these guys are amazing um but he's not the route runner that Cooper Cup or Devontae Adams or Jamar Chase or Stephon Diggs or any of those guys are. Um, what he does add for you is obviously the stuff you can do in the running game. But let's just be honest. If Debo, you know, if the, if, if the Niners aren't down four running backs, you know, for half of the season last year and Debo didn't have to be running the ball as much as he was like, as a running back, are we, 
are we talking about Debo in this conversation or is Debo yeah. sitting out this year, you know, OTAs are threatening to sit out the season and, and requesting a trade. Is any of that happening without that injury luck? Maybe he might've had a, an unbelievable breakout season, but we've, we got to see Debo in a light being a running back um, and, and having to do more to help the team win that it helped raise his stock. And he took advantage of that. No question. But again, he's, he's that offensive weapon guy. Um, I think long-term durability is concerning to me. Um, but even still, I have him as the number seven wide receiver in, in the league. So it's like, I'm not disrespecting him here. He's unbelievable. And I do think he's one of the best wide receivers in football. Um, I just want to see him do it just as a wide receiver. And if he wants, and because he's made it clear, he doesn't want to run the ball like he did before. He wants to prolong his career. And I get that. Um, but if he's going to do that, then he needs to and get paid the way that he wants to get paid. You know, he needs to to perform as as just the wide receiver um, and not as this offensive weapon who's taken handoffs. Yeah, 100 <clears throat> percent. And he had almost uh, just over 1400 yards receiving, uh, averaging 18.2 per uh, and six touchdowns. So uh, good receiver, like no question about it. But the the fact remains is that Brandon Ayuk is getting better. Uh, he had a good year, right? Uh, we don't know who's going to be the quarterback in San Francisco. And if so, for how long, uh, when are we going to see Trey Lance, right? I think he's a better receiver with Trey Lance in mm-hmm. the lineup than he is with Jimmy Garoppolo as quarterback. Um, so, you know, that questionability sort of changes. And and you said it, like the reason that he's asking for this, this uh, contract extension, and it's well, well-deserved um, is the fact that he wants to get paid like, the, the way that they're using him. And I don't think next year they're going to use him in the same way um, as, uh, as they did uh, particularly because the, the one of the masterminds behind that is now the head coach of the Miami dolphins. So um, I, I think uh, as a, as a pure receiver, uh, he's good uh, elite as, as some of the top three, top five, maybe here. I don't, I don't think he's at that level yet. Yeah. I, I think that's a good way of putting it. I, I think he is, like I said, top 10 wide receiver, but I don't think he's top five, you know, like I said, uh, but, but also if we're talking about just like, Hey, weapons, guys, you could have in your offense. And I give him credit too, by the way, for the negotiation stuff, like he's saying, and it's funny because it's kind of the same argument that Le'Veon Bell made, mm-hmm. which was like, Hey, you're using me. He was like, I want to be paid as a running back and as a wide receiver too. And smartly, um, Debo has not gone out and said the same things that Le'Veon Bell well, did yeah. publicly, which <laughs> that hurt would his right. Because that <laughs> phrase absolutely hurt Le'Veon Bell in his negotiations. He's saying, like, pay me like I'm a top five wide receiver, even if I'm not that, but you're using me in this way. And basically, if you're asking me to do two jobs and you want to use me this way, then pay me enough that it makes it worth it because there's a good chance it's going to shorten my career. Um, but yeah, yeah, Debo's amazing. And in terms of and, fantasy, and, he's a top five fantasy wide receiver. And he, oh, for sure. But yeah. But even as, as a pure receiver, like I said, he's he's 77 catches this year or last year. That's tied for 24th in the league. Mm-hmm. Right. And so which if so he's not taking as many reps, yeah, but if he's not taking as many reps of running back and other things like that, it could right. be different. Um, but you're right. I mean, that number doesn't jump out at you, you know. I mean, even if he if he caught an extra 20 balls, he's still at you know 90, he's not over 100 catches, which is where you would expect a top five to top three wide receiver to be. And I just don't think he's at that level yet, though he he very well could be after this season. Um, all right, number seven, we both had Dio. Number eight, who do you have, Scotty? I had Tyreek at eight, so who's your eight? That's right. So I have CD Lamb. Um, this is a, I'm betting on a dude who I believe in 
And um, he's so much better at everything at being a wide receiver than any of the numbers tell you. Um, the splitting care, the splitting targets with Amari Cooper, um, especially Dak was really favoring the, uh, the tight end Blake Jarwin last year, a ton too. Um, obviously they use Zeke and Tony Pollard in the passing game a little bit. I think he's unbelievably misused and for whatever reason, Dak doesn't throw him the ball, but I've seen like compilation clips where Dak, you know, in playoff games last year and, and, and big games down the stretch where they just weren't getting the ball to CD lamb. Like, it's like, it's almost like they don't understand what they have with this guy who coming out of college was the most polished route runner I've ever seen in my life. Um, CD lamb was the best clear cut number one wide receiver coming out of that draft. I felt as strongly about CD lamb as I did about Jamar chase. That's just, I just, I think he is so horribly misused in that offense. Um, and I, I think, the encouraging thing, if you're a Dallas fan, is all right. Well, they got rid of Amari Cooper, so those targets now the target share should go up for a guy like Ceedee Lamb, um, and I would expect him to have a monster year because he is talk about freak burst quickness. The the uh, his ability to get separation, his route tree, everything about him is elite. He just hasn't had the target share to prove to prove that yet. Um, and so that's why, again, if I'm talking about like, Hey, I'm building a team, I, I want CD lamb on my, on my team and especially at his age and everything too. So yeah, I'm, I, I have uh CD lamb at number eight. Yep. I have him at number nine. There you go. We're, we're a little too similar here, Jeff, but, uh, but Hey, that, but that's all right. I mean, look, like you said, he's it, for me, it's, the, it's the youth, uh, and the talent he's going to get, uh, the talent he has, and, and he's going to get more looks. Uh, being the being a true number one guy in that offense, the um, talent's there. It's under it's undeniable. And he could Watch be he play. could be a wide receiver one in any any offense in in this in this yeah. league. So, yeah, yeah. Un- unbelievable receiver. And, and uh, I think you're right. I think he's going to have a breakout year too. Uh, so I have a number nine. Um, so then that means my number nine, AJ Brown. Um, this was a tough one. Fair enough. Because this yeah. is where you could really just pick your favorite guy there. And I think I would have had A.J. Brown here before the Eagles trade. Um, I, I don't understand what's not to like about A.J. Brown. Uh, the route running could definitely get better. But you talk about a guy who can do everything, who is a home run threat, who has made huge catches and, and big moments. Um, you know, he was the alpha on that team with Julio Jones as his number two. You know, he is just he's 25. He's already proven a lot. The size, strength, he's a better wide receiver than DK um, as the two Ole Miss boys, you know, coming out together. Um, just an unbelievable physical specimen. He's so strong. The run after the catch stuff with him is crazy. I think of this list, other than Tyreek and probably Jamar Chase, I think he's the best guy on my list so far after the catch because he's so big and fast and strong. Debo um, close third. Yeah, actually, you know, I'd probably put – I would say he and Debo are kind of neck and neck there because they're both kind of built in that way, except um, A.J. Brown's apparently has slimmed down a little bit. He, he cut out some of the muscle there, which ideally would just make him even faster, but maybe a little less of that big physical freak kind of guy. Um, but you can just use him in a million different ways. He can run every single route. You can use him as a deep threat over the middle. You can use him on the outside. Again, big play catches. He had that touchdown catch in the um, playoff game against Cincinnati when it just – came right at the front pylon and Ryan Tannehill threw an unbelievable pass and it just hit him one-handed on the left hand as he's turning his body back shoulder 
and catches it in double coverage, falling into the end zone. It was just an unbelievable play. So we've seen him do big things in big moments, physical freak. Um, and yeah, maybe I'm drinking a bit of the Kool-Aid, but again, I, I really do think I would have him around here, um, you know, before the Eagles made the trade for him. Um, just because I just, you know, you look at the list after this and it drops off to guys, you know, like Jalen Waddle and um, DJ Moore, DK, Terry McLaurin, um, Amari Cooper, even if you still believe that highly in him. So it, it's kind of that same thing. And I just, I believe in the athleticism and what he's already proven in the NFL, um, as well as I think he can get better too, which is the scary thought with him. So I think he has the upside to be a top three wide receiver in this league. You know, I think he's built yeah. just like Devonte Adams. He's just not quite at that marksman route runner level that Devontae's at yet yeah he was he was this close just to my top outside. 10 just yeah. on the outside um knocking on the door uh but yeah <laughs> unbelievable receiver i think he has a, a big year too and i think having a second young elite receiver uh, on the other side of him will help that out too yeah yeah i mean just all the weapons i'm getting dangerously excited about the eagles Getting dangerously <laughs> excited about the Eagles, especially with the schedule. All right, so number nine for you then, Scotty? Uh, number nine, I had CD. Mm-hmm. And then so number, number 10. Number 10, uh, I know the age thing plays a big factor in this, but I went with Keenan Allen mm. uh, because he's been so elite for his entire career. Uh, and now he has – he's gone through his career and had uh, Phillip Rivers, uh, who will be a Hall of Fame quarterback, and Justin Herbert, who is the third best quarterback in this league, according to me. Uh, so, uh, like, I know he's going to get uh, some target share uh, in that offense. He's he's a little older. He's he's had a couple of seasons where he's been banged up uh, over the last two. But what that do- guy does when he's in the lineup, man, is spectacular. Uh, and and talk about a smooth route runner and a guy who can catch the ball wherever you place it. Yeah. Forget it, man. Keenan Keenan is elite, and and I really feel, uh, for the most part, like he hasn't really been given his due as an elite receiver. Uh, yeah. In, among among people like us who who talk about this for fun, well, we always uh, we always hype him up though. We we've always been good about hype because he it's the it's the L.A. thing, and he was in San Diego, and then it's playing in the chart. You know, it's the Chargers curse. Um, I'm with I have him at 11, so I have him just right out. So the only two we we didn't have because number 10 for me was Mike Evans. Um, I, he and Mike Evans are similar to me. The only difference is, and this has always been the weird thing with Keenan Allen. And I don't really know what the answer is, but he just never seems to find the end zone. And that might be some fantasy bias kicking in, but, um, no, it's everything you said, smooth, unbelievably reliable third down target, like as good as there is, as a third down target in the NFL. So I think Keenan Allen's great there. All right, quickly, um, outside looking in. You had AJ Brown. I'd keep it down. Anyone else that you had? I have two other names that are, I think, are worth mentioning. I do too. Uh, yeah, Jalen Waddle, who I mentioned in the middle of that, who who is an unbelievably talented young receiver on the opposite sure. side of Tyreek Hill now. And then the other guy is Deontay Johnson, uh, who mm. I think is a is an absolute stud elite receiver. Uh, the only reason I didn't have him in is is because of his situation, uh, which I think might be a little biased, but. Um, I still For me, think it's all a, the dropped passes leading the league in drops last year. Yeah, right. That's that's the, that's thing the main too, reason I, I is, didn't uh, have him there. But again, think about you know who's throwing the ball to him. So uh, in that regard, so uh, I I still think uh, I still think he's a really really good receiver, um, excellent route runner as well, um, and, and can do it. 
you know, in the run game and, 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 and mid range and slants and, and unders yeah. and, uh, and then, and then beat you deep too. So. I didn't really have Deontay Johnson anywhere near my top 10, just if I'm honest, Joe and Waddle was kind of around that area. Um, the two I have one is Terry McLaurin, because I think for him, it's totally situational. And if you take him on any other team, I think we talk about him as a top 10 wide receiver. Um, there's nothing not to like with him. And he just makes great place plays and unbelievable catches. And he's been cursed with having to play for the Washington football team, which, you know, will kill them. And hopefully the same thing doesn't happen to your boy, Jahan Dotson. Uh, the other one here is worth bringing up um, older, but has if we had this conversation a year ago, he probably is in the top three. Uh, DeAndre Hopkins. Um, the suspension this year obviously plays a part in it, but even if we remove the suspension and you get him for 17 games, um, I have him right around there still. The injury thing with him is becoming more and more apparent. Um, even when he was playing last year, he did not look great. Um, definitely a, a, a mini cliff of a year. You know, maybe we'll just say it's like, hey, you, you hit the crest of a hill, you know, and then he kind of slowly started. I, I hope that doesn't happen. Um, because I like DeAndre Hopkins a lot, but obviously with the suspension, a lot of stuff going on. And then the stuff with Kyler, I, I, I don't really know at this point, but we're talking about a dude who's been in the league almost 10 years now. Um, and so at some point, just I think the body starts to kind of break down. But I think at least DeAndre Hopkins deserves mentioned in this conversation. Um, favorite right. rookie. Favorite rookie wide receiver? Yeah. Um, I think could might crack this list as we're talking next year as Jamar Chase did. Uh, that's a good question. Um, I'm going to go... I'm going to go Chris Alave. Interesting. Yeah, that's a good one. I'm going to go Garrett Wilson. I just think Zach Wilson's going to take a huge step this year. Yeah, I, Garrett, I was stuck between those two. Um, I'm going Alave only because I know how prolific James is going to be trying to throw the football. And even still last year when he did play, they did not throw the ball as much as we thought they were going to. Um, but also they had no weapons. And I think now they know they're going to – and they have a guy in Chris Alave. I just think Alave's so pro-ready and it's so smooth. But Gary Wilson – um, he's going to be the clear number one guy there, but he's also got Elijah Moore on the other side too. So um, either one of those guys, and who knows, maybe Drake London ends up being everything that he's being built up to be. And we know he's going to get insane target share. So if he ends up coming in with like a 1500 yard season, you know, kind of like that Justin Jefferson esque or even over a thousand yards or whatever, we might be starting to talk about Drake London with his size and speed and everything in that, in that class. Um, it's a good question. I forgot we were doing that. So that was off the cuff. All right. Um, that's all we got. Great pod. Thank you, everybody, for listening. As always, we'll be back later in the week. Uh, Hopefully have an interview coming on Friday. We'll keep you guys posted on that. Um, For Scotty, I'm Jeff. Shout out to Vito. I hope you're enjoying your vacation, buddy. We love you. And we will talk to you guys on Friday. Take it easy, everybody. Peace.